Um, the reading is taken from the book of Ezra, chapter, chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm, and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbours assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in, order to, to, in, in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of, of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought, up, brought by Mithradath, the treasurer, who counted them out at Shashabat Bazaar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory, gold dishes, 30, silver dishes, 1,000, silver pans, 29, gold bowls, 30, matching silver bowls, 410, other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Sheshbazar brought all of these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Since I became a father, I have uh, been discovering a whole world of toys out there, which is great, actually. There are all sorts of cool things that didn't exist when I was a kid, and I've been enjoying finding out about them. Josiah and I have recently discovered uh, Tomika toy cars. You might not be familiar with them. Uh, here I have a public minibus with an opening side door, slides open. Uh, it will slam you inside if you are just a little slow. Um, so there's that. And then I have the taxi, the New Territories taxi. It has bouncy sus suspension, has an opening door. It's quite cool. Um, and we, we've enjoyed playing with those, Josiah and I. One of the things that blew me away about them, though, was not actually the cars themselves, but in the, the packages with the, with the bus and with the taxi, uh, came a little license and a little uh, kind of registration. Just like you would see posted at the front of the bus, right? As you get on, you, you see the picture of your driver and, and you see that he's registered to drive. Well, since we got these, I've started looking at the license and registration of the bus drivers and, and the taxi drivers. And you know, it's not really encouraged me, it's not really given me confidence because fairly often, the person driving is not the one in the picture, right? It's a picture of an old man and the woman is driving or a young man is driving. And so it's done the opposite. 
of giving me confidence. It's made me concerned, especially as they're driving a little erratically, right? They're, they're speeding into the bus stop at 60 kilometers an hour. They're uh, pulling away just as a person's foot touches the ground as they descend. They're driving like maniacs, pulling out in front of fast-moving trucks. And um, I, I, I wonder, I can't help but wonder, who on earth is driving this thing? Are they trustworthy? Are they, should they be doing this? My life is in their hands. Do they have any idea what they're doing? And isn't that often the way that we feel about our world? A few years ago, um, in Hong Kong, we were perhaps riding quite happily and safely along through life, but the last couple years have been a bit more erratic, haven't they? The last couple years have been erratic, and we can ask, we might be forced to ask, who is driving this thing? Who is in charge here? Are they qualified for this? Now, most of us probably know the the theoretical answer to that question of who is driving this, that God is in control, uh, but how solidly have we grasped that? How firmly do we hold on to that? Especially when our personal lives have gotten bumpier as well. For those of us missing our families abroad, for those of us who are under more stress and more pressure at work than we've ever been. For those of us who uh, are maybe parents and we're concerned about the well-being and the education of our children after the last year. For the person whose marriage is strained to the breaking point right now. Are you still holding on in the midst of all of that. It's very well saying that you trust the driver when when he's driving quite smoothly and things are going well, but what about when you're swerving off the road and you can't even see anybody in the driver's seat? What then? And that is why Ezra is such a brilliant book for us at the moment. It's a a brilliant book for us to learn from over the summer months because as we study this account written uh, some 7,800 kilometers away and some 2,500 years in the past, we find that Ezra is crystal clear about who is in control, who is driving the course of history. He is clear about all the twists and turns, where they come from, and who is guiding it. And I think we're going to find that um, God uses this book to give us more confidence in what he's doing. And to give us more direction as we try to rebuild church life after the last year and rebuild our personal lives as well. And so that's why we're in Ezra. But, but first, before we come to the, the reading of this morning, I want to give you a little background context so that you know where this comes in, in the great story of, of God's salvation history. When, when God had brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, where they were slaves uh, under Moses, he had promised them that if they observed his commands, they would remain in the promised land uh, forever. If they disobeyed his commands, well, they would be exiled they would come under 
his curse. So as long as they uh, lived under God's rule, they would enjoy God's land and enjoy being God's people. But as soon as they turn away from him, they would be cast into exile. Well, many centuries after that uh, entry into the promised land, uh, God's patience ran out. They never really were faithful to God and his commands. And God finally kept his promise. Uh, Under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, the the king of Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, um, Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem, uh, took all of uh, the articles out of the temple, and, and took the people of God away as slaves took them into exile in Babylon. We're told in uh, Daniel 1 and 2 Kings 24, if you want to look that up later, that they looted the temple of the Lord, taking all the vessels of gold and silver and other precious metals with them. And and they took those and they put them in the temple of Marduk, the, the god of Babylon. They put them in his temple as a sort of trophy cabinet. Right? And the message is clear from that. Uh, The God of Israel was too weak. The God of Babylon is strong. And from the outside, it did seem that way. Uh, After some unsuccessful rebellions from Israel, in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar finally destroyed Jerusalem, completely reduced the temple to rubble, and that was it. Well, about 50 years later, we, we read in Daniel chapter 5 that uh, one day Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, was having a feast. And he invited uh, loads of people around. His family was there, and as he was sufficiently drunk, he got a, a great idea, he thought. He thought, I'll go into Marduk's temple, I'll bring out the vessels of the Lord, uh, the, the God of Israel, and we'll drink from those and we'll party using those. You know, it, it has this delicious blasphemy and, and celebration of the glory days past going for it. And everybody thought that was a great idea. And so they got them out, they began drinking from them and eating off of them and praising the gods of Babylon, of gold and silver. And everyone was laughing and drinking and having a raucous time until suddenly it went dead silent. The king went white. His knees began shaking. And they were all looking up, but what were they looking at? Well, at the back of the room, on the wall, a hand had appeared, and it began writing on the wall. Mene, mene, tekel parson. And Daniel was brought in to interpret the message for the king. king. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Parson. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The God who was being blasphemed as his vessels were used to praise other gods, he appeared in the room and declared judgment. 
That very night, we read, that Belshazzar was killed as Darius the Mede stormed into the city and took it over, Darius being the ally of Cyrus, the man we read about in today's reading. Herodotus, the the Greek historian, the pagan Greek historian, fills in some of the details for us about how they did it. He claims that the Persians, they diverted the river that ran right into uh, the city of Babylon. They diverted the river and the army marched in on the dry riverbed and took over in one night. It wasn't even a battle to be held. And just like that, the great and terrible Babylonian empire was brought down and 17 days later, Cyrus walks into the city and begins his reign. And that is the context for the book of Ezra. The immediate context. The world has been turned upside down and nobody could have seen it coming. Except for that's not exactly true, is it? Because Ezra's first major point is that it had all been anticipated. And more than that, it had all occurred according to plan. Now, this is the, the first major point that uh, we read in verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, when he began to reign, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it in writing. Through the prophet Jeremiah. If, if you want to read what the prophet Jeremiah said uh, some 70 years earlier, you can read that in Jeremiah 25, verses 11 to 12, or chapter 29, verses 10 and 11. And God had declared that the exile that they were going into at Jeremiah's time, that was only going to last 70 years, said God. And at that point, he would punish Babylon and regather his people into the promised land. And here we are, uh, about 70 years later, and he was going about doing just that, while the rest of the world looked on in shock at the chaos of what had just happened, how the mighty empire had fallen. God's people remembered just faintly, oh yes, I've heard something about this. God was proceeding according to plan, right on time. The events themselves were almost, you could say, secondary. The real driver of world history was the word of God. The rise and fall of empires were simply the way that God went about fulfilling his promises. Uh, They were the instruments that he used to play his tune, but they weren't shaping the tune. The ups and downs of world history were ultimately driven by and determined by the promises of salvation history. That's what we read. You know, and isn't that a relief? Isn't that a relief? Uh, The last century has been called the American century, when Americans stood at the forefront on the world stage uh, in dominance. Uh, The centuries before that, they were called the British centuries. As the British Empire uh, spread around the world and the sun never set on the British Empire. Uh, The century ahead of us, some are calling it the Chinese century. 
as China's dominance will be established and play out on the world stage. And from a human perspective, these are the forces that have shaped world history and will shape world history. But acting behind and above and through all of that is the Word of God. And so you see, President Xi Jinping, uh, President Joe Biden, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, and all their fearsome and powerful predecessors, they are the servant boys of the Lord. Insofar as the nations they represent are useful to the Lord's ends, they will remain. They will be able to do whatever they do until the Lord has his fill, until he sees the arrogance, the blasphemy, and the wickedness, and and it becomes tiresome to him. He's wearied by it, and then they'll be cleared from the stage. And the next people will come up. But coming back uh, to Cyrus's declaration itself, in the 19th century, we uh, had a bunch of biblical scholars who would point to this passage in particular and say, oh, this is just evidence that the Bible is not historically reliable. It's uh, just some pious stories. Who would ever believe that an emperor would a foreign powerful emperor would take notice of this little people and, and send them back to their own land and give them money to build their temple? Ezra was therefore said to be a pious fiction and the Bible obviously untrustworthy. But then in 1879, uh, archaeologists discovered something called the Cyrus Cylinder. And if you're ever in London again, if you can ever travel there, you can go to the um, British Museum and you can see it in person. It's there on display. And there on the Cyrus Cylinder, we read a decree to not the Israelite people, but to the Babylonian people in language very similar to what we read in verses 2 to 4 here. And it says uh, that Cyrus is sending them back to their homelands to rebuild the temples of Marduk. And so as best we can tell, therefore, Cyrus has this general policy across the empire that he's just taken over of sending the exiled people back into their homeland and resourcing them to rebuild their temples so they'll think highly of him and favorably of him. And God's people were one of the beneficiaries. And so we might ask, why did Cyrus make this decree? Did he think it was a a good policy decision to get people on side? Maybe. Did he hear about what had happened to Belshazzar? Possibly. But what is the real reason that he made this proclamation and put it in writing? The The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus is what we read. Now, what is true at the level of international politics is true at the level of the individual as well. And therefore, you can depend on the word of the Lord. You can build your life on the word of the Lord. You can dedicate your work 
to the Word of the Lord. You can structure your family according to it, and you can pass it on to your children. And come the ups and downs of of nations or pandemics or of economies, it will stand firm as all else is shaken. You will never be put to shame if you build on the word of the Lord. There is nothing else as sure as this. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. Nothing has ever been as sure as that. But do you believe it? History bears it out. Where is the Babylonian Empire? Where is the Persian Empire? Or the Roman Empire? Or the Ottoman? Or even the British? The greatest powers of the world have crumbled. In what? A a few hundred years? At most? But what about the people of God? Where are they? They are here. In this room. They are uh, down the road in churches elsewhere throughout Hong Kong. They are gathered in buildings across the world today. In every city, in every town, just about every. uh, Not quite every, but almost. And, And so they're worshiping God. They have withstood the last 2,500 years as empires have crumbled. The Word of God drives history. But for those of us who believe this, would an outside observer uh, see that the Word of God drives your life? Would they be able to tell? Would they see it in what you do with your time? Would they see it in how you raise your children? Would they see it in how you use your resources? Or would they see something else driving your life? And your household? Whatever that might be, there's no guarantees that it's going to last. But the word of the Lord will last. I think that is Ezra's first major point. But uh, then we, we see if God is driving history, if things are as Ezra has said they are, what is history driving at? Where are we going in history? Well, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what did Cyrus declare the God given mission to be? What did he say in verse 2? If we can understand that, then perhaps we can understand the bigger picture as well. And we see in verse 2 that his mission is to see that the Lord's temple is restored, rebuilt. Why was the destruction of the temple and the desecration of the temple vessels in Babylon, why was that so utterly devastating to the people of God? It was because the temple was the meeting point between heaven and earth. It was the place, the one place on earth where God would lower himself and dwell with his people. 
humanity had been created for fellowship with God, but sin had destroyed the relationship. Yet through the temple and the sacrificial system used in the temple, sin could be dealt with and God's people could dwell with God in his presence. So throughout this whole world thrust into darkness by sin, there's this one beacon of light in the world, in the temple, where humanity could relate to God as they've been created to relate to God, and yet it stood in ruins. No temple, no hope. But now, now God was orchestrating world history to restore fellowship with his people. The most powerful man in the world was declaring that this was going to happen. And so, how would that momentous feat be accomplished? The same way that God always seems to carry out his mission. He calls his people to go. Go. Uh, Who will God use to accomplish his mission to restore fellowship with humanity? The people who are willing to go and join in with the work. Uh, The wording of the decree in verse 3, it's a little strange, but the, the implication is that only those who want to join in with the rebuilding should go. Not everybody is commanded to go. He just says, any of you who are willing, go. So not everybody's sent back. And God will be with the ones who go. Only the ones who join in with God's mission will enjoy his presence. Now that seems like a wonderful motivator, doesn't it? That seems like, you know, go and restore the hope of the world. Now that's a mission for life. Let's do that, you would think people would respond. But according to verse 5, who actually goes? What does it say? Who actually goes on the mission? Everyone whose heart God had moved. Everyone whose heart God had moved. God not only had to move the heart of a pagan king to accomplish his will, he actually had to move the hearts of his own people. They were so cold. They were so unwilling. That God had to move their hearts to make them want to join in with this amazing mission of restoring hope to the world. Left to their own devices, God's people, they just mope in Babylon. They grumble and complain about how good things used to be, but it's really easier to just stay as slaves in Babylon. But those who God personally stirred up, they caught a vision They built their lives on the promises of God and they joined in with God's mission to redeem humanity. So what does it mean for Christian people like us? Well, first, that God is still on mission to restore fellowship with humanity. 
Uh, the Bible tells us that everything that the temple sacrificial system was designed to point to, that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In his sacrifice of himself on the cross, that is where sin is finally fully dealt with and relationship between God and man restored. The blood of sheep and goats, they could never accomplish what the blood of Christ accomplished. In Christ, therefore, there is light and hope to a dark world, to a people dwelling in deep darkness. And God has orchestrated world history to the end of bringing that fellowship to every people on earth. How else can you explain the massive growth of the church over the last 2,000 years. When Jesus went up, there were uh, maybe a a few dozen followers. At Pentecost, a, a few thousand. When Jerusalem is destroyed, they're all scattered to the ends of the earth and they take this message with them. And a couple hundred years later, the whole Roman Empire is proclaiming Christianity. And every step along the way from that point through to now, the church has spread. doesn't matter who's in charge of the world in human terms. The church has spread. Under persecution, the church has spread. We live in an era when, when the church has more people in it than ever before. In every corner of the earth. Is that a coincidence? Of course not. That is God's plan and His design. What an exciting time for us to be alive. God is doing His work. But secondly, God still moves people to go and join in with His mission. He still has to move people to do it. A sinful humanity no longer has to travel to the temple to worship God. No, rather, through faith in Jesus, we can enjoy fellowship with God uh, wherever we are, whatever corner of the earth we're in. A fellowship that extends from right now through to eternity. But as Paul says in Romans 10, how can they call on the one in whom they believe? Uh, they have not believed. And, and how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless somebody goes and preaches it to them? Friends, God is calling His people on mission. He's calling us on mission to join in with His saving work. He has done the work. We just have to carry the message out. But just like the old covenant people, we need God to move our hearts to care. Our hearts are cold. We need God to move us so that we will actually go. It's my experience that when churches want to join in with God's rescue mission, there is nothing that can stop them, and there is no shortage of ways that they can do it. Ministries are created. Organizations are created. Outreach events take place. Prayer meetings are attended. Nothing can hold back 
the people that God has moved. But where churches are not motivated, not even the most brilliant mission strategy will make any impact. But we need God's Spirit to move us to mission. I think that's happening in some ways. We need to pray that God will do it more and more and more. There is light available in a dark world, and we are called to take it out. Third, God will provide the resources for those who carry out his mission. I wonder if you notice that Cyrus gave another command other than go. He said, give. And according to verse 6, who gave? Who gave? Their neighbors. Their neighbors. These were likely their Gentile neighbors, not the Israelites themselves, but their neighbors. They're sending them off with gold and silver and livestock, and that is meant to remind us of the Exodus. As God's people left Egypt and their their bags were full of all the riches of Egypt, they plundered the Egyptians as they left as slaves. God always provides what is needed to carry out His work. I know from personal experience that God always provides for the work He calls us to do. I have organized uh, several evangelistic outreach events as a, as a minister. Uh, between the guest speakers, the refreshments, the venues, and everything else, overall costs have been in the tens of thousands of dollars. And you know what? At the end of all those missions... We have had enough. The money has come. Sometimes a surplus, but always enough. Every time the cost has been covered. However it came in, it came in. And for those that God stirs up to do Christian ministry, God will provide the resources necessary to train, to equip, to deploy people in the work he calls us to. God has the cattle on a thousand hills. He can plunder the Egyptians or the Babylonians. He will ensure that the resources are there for his mission to be carried out. So will we go? Are we going to go? Last, I just want to draw your attention to those last few verses. It might seem like a boring inventory of cups and bowls and vessels and all of that. But remember, these are the things that Nebuchadnezzar carried out, that Belshazzar blasphemed, and that were now being given to Sheshbazar to walk back, to reinstall in the temple. Now, what lesson are we supposed to draw out of that? Well, I think the lesson is something like this, that God's word is going to prevail, and those who serve any ends other than God 
are just temporary, um, just temporary uh, managers of what is God's. So uh, the Babylonians, they just were stewards of the vessels until God wanted them back. And I think there's something in that for us as well, that whatever you have, whatever you can do in your life, God has given you that to steward. And you can use it for whatever ends you want. You can blaspheme God with it. You can serve your neighbors with it. You can, you can use it to grow your own wealth and your own importance and power. Uh, you can use it to make other people think well of you. Uh, but it's yours by God's hand. And God's going to require it back. And so what makes sense? What should we be using all that God has given us for? Uh, what should we be using it for? We should be using it to serve Him, to honor the one who's given it, and not ourselves, and not the empires of this world, and not all the things that demand the word of the Lord that will stand throughout history and that will bring light and life and fellowship to a dark world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, the, prophet, or the prophet Ezra and um, the book that he has given to us. Please would you lift our eyes through it. Please would you help us to see your sovereign power in this world. And please would you help us to dedicate our lives to your service. I pray that you'd use uh, this book powerfully in our church life. So I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.